Are you ready to take your leadership in your organization to the next level and beyond? Your competitors will be there before you know it. Today's leaders must perpetually innovate their leadership approach, evolve their organizations, and grow faster than the competition. Welcome to Innovating Leadership, co-creating our future with Maureen Metcalf. In the next hour, you'll meet innovative leaders who have become successful at the helm of some of the most respected organizations in the world, and you can become the next big success story. Now, here is your host, Maureen Metcalf. Hi, welcome to Innovative Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf. I'm the founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute and a fellow with the International Leadership Association. This podcast is part of a series hosted in conjunction with the International Leadership Association as part of their 2020 Global Leadership Conference, focusing on leading at the edge. At the Innovative Leadership Institute, we help leaders elevate the quality of their leadership and co-create the thriving future they seek. We assist them in navigating the disruptive trends they're facing, developing strategies to elevate themselves and their organizations to continually meet the challenges they face. I'm a regular contributor to Forbes and the lead author on an award-winning book series focusing on innovating how you lead and transforming your organization. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the content. With me on today's show is Amanda Ellis and Augusto Lopez Claros. Amanda Ellis is the Executive Director, Global Partnerships for the ASU Julie Ann Wrigley Global Futures Laboratory. She is a former New Zealand ambassador and permanent resident to the United Nations in Geneva and Prime Minister's Special Envoy. An economist by training, Amanda held several senior roles at the World Bank, the International Finance Corporation, and Westpac Banking Corporation. Amanda is a founding member of the Financial Alliance for Women and a recipient of TIAW Lifetime Achievement Award for Services to Women's Economic Empowerment. Augusto Lopez Claros is an international economist with over 30 years of experience in international organizations, including most recently the World Bank. Previously, he was Chief Economist and Director of Global Competitiveness Program at the World Economic Forum in Geneva, where he was also the editor of the Global Competitiveness Report, the forum's flagship publication, as well as a number of regional economic reports. Before joining the forum, he worked for several years in the financial sector in London with special focus on emerging markets. He is a much sought after international speaker, having lectured in the last several years at some of the world's leading universities and think tanks. So today we're going to be talking about gender equality around the world. Gender equality has many facets, archaic laws that codify sexism, male control of joint income and household assets, exclusion from governance, trafficking and violence against women denial of education and adequate health care, and gender segregation in the workforce, to name a few. So let's start with the question, what is gender equality? So all of our listeners understand what it is and why is it so important? Gender equality is a really critical concept. It's about equality of opportunity. And way back in 1947, when the Universal Declaration on Human Rights was published, there was a global commitment to this. Now, we've seen over the years a range of other commitments, including the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, 
We have seen the Beijing Platform for Action and, of course, the Millennium Development Goals back in 2000. And now in 2015, all 193 UN member countries came together unanimously to agree on an integrated approach to sustainable development for the next 15 years. And Sustainable Development Goal 5 on gender equality and the empowerment of women and girls is not only a standalone goal, but it's critical to our being able to achieve all of the other goals. Thank you. Augusto, you've suggested in some of your talks that the concept of gender equality has evolved in significant ways over the past half a century. Can you elaborate on what's evolved? And then I'll be curious about what are the gaps that you you see as needing to evolve? Traditionally, and I think this was partly beginning with the adoption by the United Nations of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and then for the decades that followed, there was a tendency to see gender equality as an issue of human rights. Discrimination against women was a violation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. It was a violation of the United Nations Charter, which has been adopted by now by 193 countries and which incorporates the concept of equality of the sexes very much at the center. And so this perspective, a human rights perspective, is appropriate, it's adequate. But what then happened, I would say sometime in the 1960s, as the debate on economic development intensified as a result of more and more countries becoming independent, sort of severing their links from their colonial masters and and then joining the United Nations, that we began to see that there was also an economic dimension to gender discrimination, that discriminating against half of the population was actually bad economics. It was bad public policy, quite aside from the human rights dimension, which of course is still present today. We discovered that, for instance, if we gave opportunities to girls uh, to go to school and to get themselves educated, down the line, we would see reductions in fertility, we would see that women would then not want to have such large families and wanted to educate themselves and train their capacities and instruct their minds. And this had a very favorable impact on the labor force participation rate of women. More and more women began to join the workforce. And this was good for the economy. It was good for economic growth, but it had other implications as well. And let me, let me highlight one that I think is particularly insightful or interesting. When women, because they are being educated, join the labor force and they contribute to family income once they get married, the the researchers, the, the, the economists and others have discovered that that tends to lead to a reallocation of what we might call political power within the family. A woman that brings family, that contributes to family income has more of a say on how those resources are used. Well, studies have been done, we have shown that where that happens, where the woman is empowered in the decision-making about how to use those resources, more money gets spent on education, more money gets spent on public health. The savings behavior of that family is better because the, the, the mother tends to look at spending in a kind of a longer perspective. Even the investments that the family does with whatever money they have left over after they have paid all their basic expenses, they tend to have a higher rate of return than than in families where all the decisions are being made by the the husband. 
all of these things which I have just described have a positive impact on economic growth. If you invest in children, you are essentially investing in the human capital of the next generation. This is going to have a favorable impact on prosperity and economic growth and income per capita in the future. I could say more on this on this issue of the, of the ramifications, but let me go on to the next point, which I, I wanted to, to mention, which is that as we have now recognized what Amanda called the, the diversity dividend or, or the economic benefits of empowering women economically and providing them opportunities you know, to make, make their contribution to the economy, we have now entered a stage where I think that more and more people are recognizing that the political empowerment of women is absolutely vital, that it is the next stage in the struggle for gender equality. And here again, the, the, the data that, that is accumulating is really quite encouraging. Let me give you a, a, an example. Some countries, I think, born out of a sense of frustration that the political empowerment of women was lagging behind, for instance, in India today, only 11% of parliamentarians are actually women. In Russia, 15%. In Brazil, 15%, and so on. In other words, when it comes to the, to the national legislative body, you know, that, that organization or institution that, that builds the legal framework for the country, women are hugely underrepresented, right? So some countries have decided to short-circuit that process and they have introduced quotas, essentially establishing a minimum threshold for the participation of women in parliament. And of course, some countries haven't done it. And so that provides a very interesting basis of comparison. You can begin to say, well, have the, has the introduction of quotas made any difference in those countries that have introduced them? And the data there is very encouraging. For instance, the countries that have quotas for women in parliament have higher labor force participation rates, more women join the workforce. What seems to be happening is that there is a kind of a, an environment that's created where young women in particular, seen on national television and the, and the press, all these important women in parliament sitting on budget committees and you know, participating actively with their peers, the men, in shaping legislation and so on, that seems to have a very powerful effect on young women who basically tell themselves, hey, I like to do that. I want to finish my education. I want to acquire skills. Yes, of course, along the way, I want to be a mother and I want to be a wife as well, but I don't want that to be my only source of fulfillment. I want to contribute in some other way you know, to, to society, to economic growth, to, to the political life of my, of my nation. And that you know, is happening more rapidly and more, more obviously in countries that have introduced quotas. The Gender Equality and Governance Index taps into some of the world's best databases to analyze gender discrimination on a global scale. Augusto, can you help us understand what is the GEGI, the Global Equity and Governance Index? Yes, yes, indeed. Thank you. Thank you, Maureen. I'll be happy to, to tell you a little bit about the, the index. You know that building indices is something that has, has evolved in a, in a big way in the last 20, 30 years. The use of data in general illuminates our conversation. We can discuss the merits of policies based on evidence rather than, than dogmas or, or beliefs. So 
a number of organizations, including the World Bank and, and others, you know, in, in recent years have built up indices to track issues like, let's say, corruption, the Corruption Perceptions Index put together by Transparency International has, has acquired a great deal of prominence. The World Bank for many years has been involved in uh, building an index called the Ease of Doing Business, which looks at business environment conditions in 190 countries. Our own index, the Gender Equality and Governance Index, has been, has been built in that spirit of essentially bringing a great deal of data together so that we can look at what are the best practices in the area of gender equality throughout the world. When you bring masses and masses of data together and you come up with a ranking, which tells you, for instance, that Iceland is the number one country in the world, and then it shows you, you know, the, the countries that are in the top positions, immediately it raises the question of what are these countries doing well? Why have they met with success in terms of providing greater opportunities for women? What are some of the implications of having done that? because you can correlate the results of the index, you know, with other variables that will tell you about the beneficial effect of addressing issues of gender equality. And then also, if you repeat the exercise on an annual basis, which we will do, then it also gives countries an opportunity to track their progress over time and to compare themselves and their performance vis-a-vis -vis what is happening in those countries where the best practices are located. So it provides a powerful incentive for reform or for change. Augusto, thank you so much for talking about especially women's empowerment and governance and in government. Now let's talk a little bit about what matters for gender equality so that our listeners can have a better sense for what levers are we trying to influence? You know, Maureen, I guess over the last many decades, we have learned a great deal from the insights from decades of work done in organizations like the World Bank, that many of the multilateral development banks. From academic research, gender equality has been taken up you know, with a great deal of enthusiasm in, in academic circles. Professors and others you know, have looked at the data to look at what are the economic consequences of providing more opportunities for women. And then, of course, we also have the voices of civil society and, of course, millions and millions of women who are telling us the burdens under which they work and they live and the, the kind of restrictions and discriminations that they face. And all of these factors have sort of illumined the work that we have done in building the Gender Equality and Governance Index. So these are some of the areas that we have looked at. You know, we look at the legal framework. We think that the legal framework in a country is very important. You know, does the constitution, for instance, identify gender as a protected category? Or is the constitution completely silent on, silent on the issue of gender equality? That's an important question. Has the country ratified CEDA, the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women? This is a very important UN convention. What we have discovered, the data is fascinating, is that when countries ratify the, this convention. In other words, when they assume an international commitment not to discriminate against women, within five years, you can actually measure a movement towards the elimination of many of the discri discriminations against women that were embedded in their laws up to that, that moment. So we include that in our index. 
Participation is very important. Are women being shut out from positions of influence? Are they being encouraged to become members of parliament? Are they sitting at the Ministry of Finance and at the Central Bank as ministers and governors? Are they sitting on the boards of uh, companies listed in the stock exchange? This is absolutely vital for economic prosperity. The presence or absence of women in positions of authority where they can make decisions you know, is vital. The data is, is really quite, quite impressive from that front. Education. Is, this, is the educational system in some way discriminating against women or sacrificing girls at the expense of less qualified boys? What about the digital divide? Are the latest technologies being, you know, do women have access to the latest technologies in the same way as men do? It turns out that in the world, in much of the developing world especially, there is still a digital divide. When it comes to work, do women enjoy certain kinds of incentives? You know, do they have maternity leave? Is there paternity leave? That has become a, a very important indicator of, you know, a state's readiness to support women in their decision to work. Is childcare tax deductible? You might think that that's a very arcane subject. In fact, it, make, it makes a difference. It makes a difference because very often when a woman joins the workforce, you know, she has to provide for childcare. And whether this expense is tax deductible or not makes, makes a difference. What about the business environment? In some countries, it's actually more difficult for women to register a business or to open up a bank account mm. than it is for men. So yeah. in our index, we penalize countries which actually make entrepreneurship for women more difficult than, than for men. What about mobility restrictions? Some countries actually make it very difficult for, for women to move about. They need the authorization of their husbands to get a passport, to travel abroad. Property rights. Is the property rights regime equitable? Does it treat men and women fairly, equally, or, or does it discriminate against women? You know, in Chile, to give you an example, if you marry under the default marriage regime, then the husband assumes control of all the property that you have. Even if you bring property of your own into the marriage, you know, he has control. If you, want to, if you want to get a bank loan and you want to use the property as collateral, you can do that only if your husband says yes. If he's in a bad mood and he doesn't want to, you, you, you're finished. You can't. Violence against women. You know, does the country have domestic legislation that protects women from violence? And so on. I think you get an idea. This gives you a sense of some of the factors that we have looked at. And, and it is the reason why we think this index is going to be a, a point of reference going forward in terms of assessing the problems of gender inequality. Amanda, tell us about the World Bank Women Business and Law Project that you're drawing some of the data sets from. Well, thank you, Maureen. This is a project that's very dear to my heart. It started way back in the mid-2000s at the bank when I was working for the private sector arm of the bank, the International Finance Corporation, and was traveling to many developing countries where it became clear that women were often legal minors, did not have access to property, to secure a loan as collateral, to grow businesses. So a range of problems that we were not seeing in developed countries that were really impacting their ability to be active in the formal sector, to help with education, 
and nutrition for their families, which of course has a positive multiplier impact on intergenerational development. So I started thinking, wow, well, all of these impediments documented anywhere. And we really found that they weren't. So the genesis of the project was to begin to look at all of the countries where there were discriminatory laws preventing women from being active in the formal sector. And I'm so delighted to say that now in 2020, there is data for 190 countries. And we've just been working with the World Bank to codify that. So you can actually now go on a world map, which is on our website, click on the country and the data comes up. So it's possible to see where have recent reforms been made, what still needs to be done, and then to scroll down and see the precise laws that need to be changed. And while we know that legal equality is not the be all and end all, it is a necessary but not sufficient condition as a basis for gender equality. And of course in 2020, not a single country has yet achieved gender equality under the law only eight fully legislate for it. And we know that there's 1,669 discriminatory laws globally that Augusto and I and many others are working very hard to change. Amanda, tell us why having more women in governance roles makes sense from a business perspective and from a human rights perspective. There's now significant data that shows where there are more women engaged on boards and in senior management in the private sector there's something like a 6% higher return on investment. And it's pretty well accepted in the private sector now that there is a diversity dividend. That said, we still have a third of global companies where there are no women at all represented on boards. So we still have a lot of work to do. We know that where governments put in place incentives, for example, in Norway in 2008, there was a requirement to have 40% women on public sector boards. And initially there was an outcry saying that's impossible. Well, it was entirely possible. And in fact, again, it was proved that the diversity dividend was borne out. It was a very practical and positive initiative to put in place because as Augusto will tell you, values don't change as quickly as sometimes the data. So we've seen a number of other countries follow suit, France, Australia, the state of California in the US, because they're seeing that this just makes good business sense. In terms of governance, there's been recent studies done by the International Finance Corporation and Foreign Policy that link more women in governance to better outcomes around sustainability, which of course is the defining challenge of our time with only eight and a half years of carbon budget left. So for me, that's a very interesting and critical dimension to why when we have more women in governance roles in parliaments and in in local bodies that we are actually going to see smarter decisions. And of course, at a time when the IMF CEO, Kristalina Georgieva, is urging us to build forward better with green approaches and green jobs rather than building back in the old way, we realize just how important it is for women to be well represented to have a seat at the table and to make sure their voices are heard. Thank you. Thank you. Very, very helpful. The insight for all of us, whether we are trying to understand the the diversity dividend or whether we are in the process of rebuilding to give us both the insight and practical steps for moving forward. 
I'm Maureen Metcalf, and we're talking with Amanda Ellis and Augusto Lopez-Claros about the state of women's equality around the globe. We'll continue this discussion right after the break. Stay tuned. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. The Innovative Leadership Institute is your trusted partner to create perpetual innovation and evolution in your leadership and organization. Are you ready to innovate and evolve? Since its inception, the Innovative Leadership Institute has been dedicated to helping leaders evolve their leadership mindset and skills and create organizations that can continually innovate to achieve results in a highly competitive and rapidly changing environment. We help leaders, management teams, and organizations identify and create the capacity to update how they lead, identify, and implement transformative solutions necessary to meet their mission and create strategic advantage. The Innovative Leadership Institute offers proven results backed by leading-edge research and a global network of accomplished consultants and thought leaders. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Maureen and her associates are ready to discuss your needs and tailor a solution to meet your goals. Move forward with the Innovative Leadership Institute. Visit InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com today. Small businesses are in trouble, and it didn't just start with COVID-19. From the recession several years ago to the revolution of e-commerce giants more recently, small businesses are getting hit hard and need to come back. Tune in to Business Buzz and Business Watch. It's two shows in one. Hosted by Frank Hellring. We'll help your small business bounce back with best practices, guest experts, and resources that you can use to strengthen your small business. Listen Wednesdays at 10 a.m. Pacific and 1 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Business. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. You are listening to Innovative Leadership, co-creating our future. To reach Maureen Metcalf or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to info at InnovativeLeadershipInstitute.com. Now, back to this week's program. Welcome back. I'm Maureen Metcalf, and we're continuing our conversation with Amanda Ellis and Augusto Lopez-Claros. So as we go into the final segment, we've talked a lot about the data. Are there practices that you want our listeners to walk away with? If we could do a handful of things, what would you recommend? Because you've given some incredibly useful big policy recommendations. 
You know, I think that we should begin with the realization that we need to move from simply providing sort of equality of opportunities and focusing more on equality of outcomes. Yeah, let me give you an example. Many countries in, in North, the North Africa and the Middle East have uh, educated uh, young women and have really spent quite a, quite a deal of, of, of money promoting the, the, the education of, of, of women and, and, and young girls. And this is all very good. And the school enrollment rates in these countries have, have caught up with the school enrollment rate of boys. However, when you look at what actually happens once you enter the job market, the labor force participation rate in Saudi Arabia and Iran for men is 70-75%. For women, it is 17-18%. You know, there's a huge gap, right? Mm-hmm. And this is what I mean by equality of outcomes, right? Yes, we, we, we have equal educational opportunities, but when it comes to joining the labor force, we're putting all kinds of obstacles for actually women doing that. So that is a very important thing. But beyond that, and the many factors that it looks at, you know, will actually become a catalyst for change. This is not just an academic exercise. We want to have this, we want to use this index to engage in dialogue with governments, with civil society. We want to highlight best practices and we want countries to use this data and the index to narrow the gap and to facilitate the contribution that women make to the economy as well as to national governance. Thank you, Augusto. This is brilliant input and so incredibly useful at this point in time. As you and Amanda pointed out, the outcomes in our world are better when we have appropriate representation and balance of input between men and women and when we're working together in a way that's collaborative to really create a world that we all want to live in. In 1912, the head of the Baha'i community gave a speech in Paris in which he made a very interesting point. He said, as long as women are prevented from attaining their highest capabilities, so long will men be unable to reach the greatness which might be theirs. In other words, gender equality is not a zero-sum game. Gender equality is not, does not mean loss for men. We all gain you know, when we become partners, when we work together for the betterment of our societies and for a more peaceful and more prosperous world. Yeah, I think that's a brilliant summary, Augusto. And it takes us back to something Amanda said earlier when we talk about COVID. One person right. infected means we all are at risk. Right. When we suppress one group of people, whether it be based on gender or nationality or orientation or any number of other factors, then we are diminishing our capacity as as humans together. Absolutely. Absolutely. You put it very nicely. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You know, we think of the oppressed, right, as being the, those who really suffer. But the oppressors, in the end, they suffer too. Their oppressor comes back to haunt them, and they pay a heavy price for doing that as well. So I think Amanda put it very nicely, but I think what Amanda is illustrating, and I think what COVID-19 has shown, you know, is just we are one human family, right? We are completely interdependent, and we should begin to think of welfare in global terms, 
Thank you. That is a beautiful summation and an invitation for all of us to recalibrate if we're not considering ourselves as a human family and that everyone's well-being is important to the success of all that our invitation from this interview is think about who we are minimizing or diminishing in any way and recalibrate how we're thinking of others. One of the things that you've talked about is women leaders have had considerably more success in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. What about women's governance stands out and how does the index highlight this? Well, this is a significant finding from the data sets that make up the index. And we know that where there is more inclusive governance, where there are higher levels of gender equality, that in fact, everybody is better off. So when we look at the track record on the pandemic, while women are only one in 10 leaders globally, they comprise 40% of the successful responses to COVID-19. And in fact, analysis done by Nick Kristoff shows that there is a six times lower death count in countries led by women. Now, of course, I'm from New Zealand and so extraordinarily proud of Jacinda Ardern, our prime minister, who has registered only 35, it's 25 deaths. But what I think is remarkable is the leadership approach and parallels can be drawn with other women leaders. So first of all, a data-driven approach, drawing on science, but also that it is a collaborative leadership approach. Jacinda would go on social media every night and say to everybody, our team of 5 million needs to pull together. So the idea of everybody working together collaboratively, and as we know with the pandemic, we're not safe until we're all safe. It's really sheeted home, this concept of interconnectedness. And I guess the parallels with climate change are very similar. We're not safe until we're all safe. And, and I think this, the second concept which women leaders have dealt with very well is exponentiality. It took 100 days for the first 1 million cases of COVID. And now, of course, it's a day, less than a day, and we're up to 49 million cases and counting. So the idea of decisive action and preventive action is really critical. And again, we're seeing women leaders also drawing those, those kind of parallels with the climate crisis as well. They're very intertwined. So looking to summarize then that we're looking at a governance approach that is data-driven, based on science, collaborative, drawing everybody in, and I would actually add compassionate. As Jacinda had said, kindness and strength are not mutually exclusive concepts. They're actually concepts that need to go together in a world where saving lives and livelihoods are two sides of the same coin. I think that's such an important observation. Two things that stood out were no one is safe till everyone's safe. It's not a, I can save myself first and then worry about you. It really does point to the interconnectedness and the compassion and care that, that both being healthy and being employed are interconnected. I'm not choosing one or the other, 
that they they really do go hand in hand. Absolutely. And I think, Maureen, the, the other point that I would make is that it is so important for us to inform and collaborate. So Augusto and I have been delighted to collaborate at the Global Governance Forum and the ASU Julianne Wrigley Global Futures Laboratory, along with a whole range of other coalition partners, including the World Mm -hmm. Bank, the United Nations, the Interparliamentary Union. We have all worked together on a series of short video trainings around Sustainable Development Goal 5. And you can see those videos on our website. The idea is that we want to help people understand in very short bites, so they're just three to four minute videos, what are the key issues and then what are the levers for change? And I think creating an easy way for people to look at just where we are, which the index does, and then to see where are the levers for us to create change that is positive and meaningful for everybody. So we've been thrilled to collaborate on the SDG5 tools, and we've now actually gone a step further and looked at the Human Rights Council, where every country has its human rights legislation, including gender equality, reviewed every three to five years. And so now there's a push-out mechanism which anyone in the world can sign up to. So whether you're a parliamentarian, a civil society activist, a private sector player, anyone can sign on to this. And 12 months in advance of your country's examination, which is called the Universal Periodic Review, you get a little note, a bring up email, and it gives you a summary in real time of where your country is on its progress to gender equality under the law. So we see that campaign as a very important underpinning to the work of the index, which of course goes much further and looks at values and a whole range of other critical factors. But we see this very much as a supporting initiative to help. For our listeners, I just wanna recap the five pillars. So one is governance, two is education, three is work, four is entrepreneurship, and five is violence. And in violence, you also described property rights and and the ability to control assets. So from there, how is that information used to help elevate women across the globe? One of the advantages of of indices is that they they help you focus your attention on, on best practices, right? Because once you aggregate all of this data, and we're looking at more than 60, 60 variables. You know, we're using some of the best, latest available data sets in the world. Out of that process, eventually you end up with, you know, a list of a top 20 countries, right? In, in our index, we actually have data for 158 countries. You're focusing your attention on the top 20, say, forces you to basically ask the question, well, what is it that these countries are doing well? Why is it that they have provided more opportunities for women? Why is it that their labor force participation rate of women in these countries is higher? And so on. And so let me just comment a little bit on what the sort of early results of the index show. They, the composition of the countries near the top is really quite interesting. Most of those countries are countries in, in, in Europe. Among the top 20, we also have Canada in North America. We have New Zealand in Asia. Taiwan has an enviable position as well in the index. And that's interesting because, as you know, Taiwan in the current crisis of COVID 
is the country that arguably, together with New Zealand, has managed the crisis in the most effective way. They have unusually low levels of of uh, mortality and very few cases, right? Both incidentally, as was mentioned earlier by Amanda, are of course led by, by, by women. These countries tend to have a legal framework that is more even-handed, that does not discriminate against women. Let me give you an example. I'm speaking to you tonight from Spain. Well, Spain has a legislation that is to a great extent gender neutral. We have not been able to identify a a single piece of Spanish legislation that actually discriminates against against women. And this is important. It doesn't mean that there is no gender gap in Spain, but it it does mean that at least the starting point is a level playing field for men and, and women. Women are not going to be discriminated against, you know, through the, through the civil code, the labor code, the tax code, family law, and so on. These countries tend to have more generous leave policies. I'm talking about maternity leave, paternity leave, and so on, which is very highly correlated with labor force participation. I mean, it's mm-hmm. obvious, it's intuitive. Yeah. If, if the country and its laws and its companies make it easier for women to join the workforce, more women are going to join the workforce. Alternatively, in those countries where no such incentives are provided, not only is the labor force participation rate lower, but interestingly, levels of income inequality are also worse. So the kind of incentives which governments provide is a very important engine also of having a more equitable society where income is better distributed. These are countries where women tend to have more mobility, more freedom to become entrepreneurs. There is higher sensitivity in these countries to the importance of providing legal protections for women, you know, for sexual harassment, for domestic violence, Mm -hmm. and so on. You know, one of the insights of recent research is that in those countries that have introduced legislation protecting women from violence, the average life expectancy of women is actually higher. I mean, that's a very shocking statistic. In other words, in in those countries that don't have legislation protecting women from domestic violence, women are living short, have shorter span lives because many of them are dying through acts of violence committed against mm-hmm. them because there is no there is no deterrence effect. The husband who beats up and eventually kills his wife, or the man who who commits hideous acts of violence against his girlfriend or his partner, there is no deterrent, there is no punishment, right? Where the law provides a deterrent, it makes, it has an impact. Men are more conscious of the legal implications of of domestic violence, and therefore, you know, levels of violence are reduced. In our index, we look at a very interesting phenomena, which is not much talked about in the West, but which is a huge issue, especially in China and India, which is called son preference. Families, sometime in the the 1980s, with the arrival of new technologies, began to use sex-selective abortion as a way of just ensuring a son in the family. In China, for instance, under the one-child policy, Families went out of the way to abort the girls and to have boys. This is, this is a particularly nasty form of discrimination against women because it involves you know, the killing of girls. And it has horrendous economic and social implications. You know? In particular, as you can imagine, in India and in China, 
there is a shortage of something like 70 million girls, right? So it's a very tight marriage market, which creates all other kinds of social dislocations. Amanda, let's now shift the ASU Julianne Wrigley Global Futures Laboratory has just recently launched one of the first big projects being the global campaign on the UN SDG5. Tell us more about it and why ASU and the Global Governance Forum partnered on this. Well, this initiative is very much a collaborative initiative, and we're lucky at ASU to have an extraordinary range of experts on gender equality, from work in refugee camps to practical action and partnership with the Peace Corps around education for those who don't have online access, to governance issues, to economic issues, to practical entrepreneurial ventures. So just a range of incredible players. And in terms of governance, Professor Mickey Kittleson has done a lot of work looking at when you have more women in governance roles, what does that mean in terms of role modeling? And her work, particularly in Latin America, has shown that there is a positive correlation between more women in governance roles and women actually being active in the political process. So that for us is a really important part of the overall initiative and, of course, an important link to the Global Governance Index. Now, the the UN SDG 5 campaign was really designed with action and information in mind. So the point was, how do we inform How do we do this in a way that encourages people to take action? And then how do we make sure that this is collaborative? So it is a whole range of different organizations who have come together from civil society through to global governance organizations like the World Bank and the United Nations. And then a whole range also of uh, private sector and uh, entrepreneurial players like the We Empower UNSGG Challenge. So for us, this initiative is one that aims to inform and aims to inspire action. And then finally, and very importantly, to measure change and to see what is the outcome of our actions and to make that transparent so that everybody is able to help track progress towards our goal of gender equality, which of course we know leads to better outcomes for everybody. Thank you. So in our blog, we will also make sure that we have links so that people can find the videos. And most importantly, it's helpful for us to know where we are so we know what gap to fill. But so often we want to do something and don't know what those action steps are. So I really appreciate that you are creating opportunities for people to not only understand how large or small the gap is, but also to take concrete action to close it. Thank you. And I wanted to give special thanks to Augusto too, because we really need male champions. And Augusto has been such an outstanding gender champion for so many years in a range of pivotal roles from his time at the IMF to then the World Economic Forum to then the World Bank, where he oversaw the Women, Business and the Law Project, and now as the chair of the Global Governance Forum. So Augusto, we need more men like you. And so grateful to have you in this incredible leadership role, helping to uplift and promote the voices of women 
and their interests all around the world. So thank you very much. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you so much. We've been talking with Amanda Ellis and Augusto Lopez Claros about gender equality in 158 countries across the globe. I'm Maureen Metcalf. Thanks for joining us. Thank you again for joining us this week. Please tune in for another edition of Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future with Maureen Metcalf next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. We hope you'll join us then and have a great week.